0: I hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. We are in a series at the moment called It's Not the End of the World. It's not the end of the world. And it's all about end times. Joshua Taylor did a great job last week kicking us off and showing why we should care about what's going to happen when it all comes towards its completion. He showed that the end times isn't a story in which all of our hope is lost. It is instead a promise in which all of our hope is meant to be anchored. When I was young, maybe 10 years old, my church hosted a seminar with an end times expert, and they were impressive. They knew a lot and had lots of charts and diagrams, and they to seemed to know all the secrets. And what I remember <clears throat> from that seminar was this overwhelming sense of dread. Overwhelming sense of, oh my goodness. Jesus was likely gonna come back, he said, before I was an adult. And there would be a series of terrifying things that would happen in the lead up. I was overwhelmed and petrified. You shouldn't take a 10 year old to an end time seminar. I just don't think that's wise. Uh, This week also, I pulled out my Bible that I used to use as a teenager. And I was looking through the passage we studied last week, Matthew 24, and I found two passages which I want to show you up on the screen. I wrote all over this Bible. It was just part of my fun, almost journaling thing. I'd underline verses, and uh, it's fun for me now to go back and see what 16-year-old me was actually thinking about. And everyone has a theory, right, on when Jesus is coming back. And it turns out I did too. Here it goes up on the screen here. This is Matthew 24. You may not be able to see all of it, but Jesus is talking about end times, and he says, therefore, keep watch, because you don't know the hour that the Lord will return. Uh, You don't, and then it says that the Son of Man will come in an hour you do not expect him. So you'll see I wrote there 2 (laughs) a.m. That was me as a 16-year-old. I thought to myself, I know, what hour would I not expect someone to come around? 2 a.m., there you go, I cracked the code. You guys can take that to the bank. Actually, 25 years later, that's about as close as I'm likely to get. So if you've come tonight hoping to know when the end of the world might be, 2 a.m. is as close as you're gonna get because I don't know, I've absolutely. I don't actually think we're supposed to know. Uh, That's just, yeah, that was my sense of humor. So anyway, the second one was from what Josh mentioned uh, in the scripture uh, last week from Matthew 24, where it talks about the gospel will go through all the world, and then the end will come. And so I went to a conference as a teenager and had my Bible open in front of me, and they told us when it was going to be. So let's have a look at that up on the screen there. Uh, Bring that one up. It says, the gospel will be preached into all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so I wrote in my Bible there by 2001, because when I went to this conference, that's what they said. It's going to be by 2001. You can also see how I like to underline the verse numbers. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's, you know, that should probably be more important in the end. But you can see what I wrote. You see what I wrote after by 2001? Scary. Scary, because that's what I thought, that's what I felt. I was like, oh my goodness, by 2001, this is all going to be gone, this is all going to be over. Now, as it turns out, uh, I was obviously some way off, unless we've all missed something. But it was, it was scary. Revelation has beasts. If we look at that book, if we look at the book of Revelation, it has beasts and dragons with multiple heads, and they have horns, and there are plagues, and it's the end of the world. And it's easy to get terrified. And I think when we do that, we actually miss the point of what Revelation is all about. Tonight I'm here to answer the question, Why does the end time, what does the end times tell us about Jesus? What does the end times tell us about Jesus? Now this is not your normal question when you open the book of Revelation, but I think it is the question that we should be asking as we open the book of Revelation. It's one of the most important. The, book of, the point of the book of Revelation is not to give us a clue to figure out when the end of the world is going to happen. The point of the book of Revelation is to tell us about Jesus, about the one who's in charge of the end of the world so that we might have confidence that he can take care of us here and now. Let's start in Revelation chapter one, verse one. It says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. What's revelation about? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. It's about things that will happen, but at its core, I think it is about Jesus and where he fits into the story. Through Revelation, we get these these pictures of Jesus. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to walk into two scenes, two scenes that Jesus shows up in. That tells us that the story that we're living about is all about him. And it makes a massive, massive difference to the way we live today. Let's look at the first passage from Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 to 16. It says this. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. Standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, He was wearing a long robe with gold sash around his chest. His head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun and all its brilliance. What a beautiful scene. What an amazing scene. And I don't know whether you're uh, one of those right-brained people who is creative and you like to picture things. And you maybe have a picture in your head now as to what that's all about. One of my core beliefs about Revelation is that it is filled with symbolic language the pictures that are seen, many of the times that are given, a symbolic language of the things that God will achieve. And nowhere is that symbolism more clear, that metaphor language more clear than right here. This week, I read a history article, ch- uh, channel article on what Jesus looks like. And they said, well, the, the, the only thing the Bible really tells us about what Jesus looks like is this one. He's white haired with skin like polished bronze and he's got kind of fiery eyes and a face that's really bright. That's not what's happening here. This is not a description of what Jesus physically looks like. It is a visual picture. It's doing this amazing thing. It's hyperlinking. You know, you're on a web page and you see that little blue highlighted thing. You can click on it, it takes you somewhere else. It's hyperlinking to the Old Testament. If you ever look in the sermon notes, you can see a few passages and how these reveal Jesus' nature. Let's let's, let's break this down. He walks among the lampstands, which we are told later on are the churches that John is writing this letter to. He was like the Son of Man, which is an amazingly important reference straight from the book of Daniel. He's referencing that all over. He is clothed with the robe of a priest, the robe and the sash, one who intercedes for his people. His hair is white, symbolizing perfect wisdom. His eyes are like flames of fire to show that he is the all-knowing judge. His feet are like polished bronze to show he is unshakable at his foundation. His voice is as powerful as a mighty ocean. He holds seven stars. In other words, as we will read later, he holds the church. He has a, a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus isn't walking around like this all the time. He, it's, it's symbolism. It's saying that he speaks the word of God. His face is shining with the glory of God. His face is shining like Jesus when he was transfigured. What a beautiful description of who Jesus is. His wisdom, his power, his ability to judge, his connection with the glory of God. And what John is is showing us is he's showing a visual picture of Jesus' nature and his character. And you're not so much supposed, uh, supposed to see the picture as appreciate all the pieces together and the revelation of Jesus. And this revelation is important because it sustains John through all that he is to see ahead. Let's read these next two verses, verse 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me. He said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I, I hold the keys of death and the grave. John falls down because he sees that he is in the, the presence of someone truly holy. He is terrified. And out of all the things that happen in Revelation, this is really profound. The only thing, all the dragons and the plagues and the seals and the judgments, or the only thing that we we read, that makes him afraid, is this. When he sees Jesus for who he really is. But because Jesus lifts him up, he's able to walk forward into whatever happens next. Because he's walking forward with the one who is greater than all of it. The one who is stronger than all of it. It's like a light coming on for John. That's fine. We can leave that on. That's all good. That, that's what's going on. That's what's happening for him. He's going, I can face all of this because I have seen Jesus in all of his glory, the first and the last, the living one who died but is alive forever and ever. He holds the keys of death in the grave. This is the Jesus that we follow too. This is the way that we should see him. It's the one who is glorious, the one who is righteous, the one who is wise and willing and able to judge, the one who lays his hand upon us and lifts us up. He is awesome and he cares. So that's our first scene. Jesus in all of his power and, our, and, his, and glory. And the second scene I want to take you into, I think is, is in some ways even more powerful than that. It is one of my favorite passages of scripture. We're going to journey into the very throne room of heaven. And Revelation 4, which we won't read, sets us up so beautifully. And it sets it up uh, to this place that we're drawn into, where there are 24 elders who sit on 24 thrones, likely representing the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. There are four winged creatures, a lion, an ox, a human, and an eagle, representing all of creation. And they are here to witness a solemn ceremony. We're going to look at this one verse at a time. I'm going to break it down a little bit. Revelation chapter five, verse one. Then I saw a scroll, a scroll. In the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. Picture this, if you will. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. So what's the scroll about? Why is it so important? We find in the coming chapters that this scroll is the saga of human history. It is the account of God's unfinished purposes for his creation. In it, his plan to bring all of human history to its climax. It is the plan for how God will have creation achieve the goal for which it was created. It is a story of judgment and of bringing righteousness to the world. It's a really important scroll. And we can take great comfort in the existence of this scroll. What this tells us is that God does have a plan to make all things right. Now, we live in a postmodern world. That means everyone does what they feel is right, and they make their own story, right? We say, "Ah, every day I'm making my own story. Many would say as a result, that there is no scroll. There is no big story that is being worked out. There is only our fight for power and for life. The only thing that seems to unite humanity is our fear of death. William Shakespeare summed this up really well. He said, this life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And that is what many believe at the core of their life and in their heart. But that is not the story of Christianity. We see that God is the master of ceremonies, and he will have the final word. The book is written, and now it just needs to be opened and spoken. Verse 2 and 3, and I saw a strong angel, strong angel, who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Now, here we come to the crux of the matter. God has a plan but he needs someone to enact it, to break the seals, to open the scroll. A call goes out from the throne room of heaven. Will the worthy person please step forward? And there's silence. There's no one, not one person in all of history. No one is stepping forward. No one amongst all the realms of existence is able to open it. They might try, but they are all unworthy. So we read in verse four. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. Why does John weep? Why does he weep? It's an important scroll, right? But it's not that big a deal. He weeps because if no one is worthy, then this world of persecution and suffering that John's writing to with his uh, followers, this world of suffering and pain, it will never end. He longs for an eternal reality of peace and harmony between people and God, where all of life is all it was ever meant to be, where people can grow and learn and play and work with complete freedom and fulfillment. If the scroll is not opened, it means that all God had intended his creation to be will never be. We live in this world filled with sin, broken by sin, broken by human selfishness, where injustice is insidious, where sickness shatters, where natural disasters devastate, where lust is greater than love, where I is greater than you, where it is such a battle to maintain harmony in our relationships, a world where marriages disintegrate, where children reject their parents and parents abuse their children. And our deep belief is that the world is not meant to be this way. We have hope that we will, there will come a day where all wrongs will be made right, where the brokenness, which even if it can't be undone as though it had never happened, will be mended and molded into something that is brand new and good. And I don't know about you, but I long for such a world. There is something in our bones that aches for it. We join with all creation and groaning for that new reality, and if that cannot be, then we would weep too. We should. I long for the day of no mores, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more death. My heart aches for it. And John weeps, as he should. But that is not the end of the story. Verse five. But one of the twenty-four elders said to me, "Stop weeping." Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is worthy? The elder says that there is only one, the true human, the true Israel, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the heir to David's throne, Jesus. This is where we expect to see the greatest creature in all of history to enter. Think someone more inspiring than the greatest leaders, someone stronger than the most celebrated war heroes, someone who will evoke in you awe and fear, someone majestic. Can you get the picture of that person in your mind? Maybe it's the same image that we saw before. Eyes of fire, hair like snow, face shining like the sun. Surely this is who will turn up. Let's see what John says, verse six. Then I saw, then I saw a lamb, a lamb, that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. Uh, and And among the 24 elders, he had seven horns, a symbol of his complete power, and seven eyes, a symbol of his omniscience which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. We expect someone great, but when he steps forward and John looks at him, it must have been a shocking sight. What he sees doesn't seem much like a lion. Instead of roaring and victorious conqueror, he sees a lamb who's been slaughtered. Heaven sees him one way. John sees him another way. The one who is worthy is the slaughtered lamb, Jesus, who became the sacrificial lamb for you and for me, yet he's still standing because he beat death. He gave it all for you and for me and all creation, and that's what makes him worthy. The victory of the lion is accomplished by the sacrifice of the lamb. It's a lion-like victory, a victory over all forces of corruption and death. And then we get this moment. Oh, it's such a moment. Verse seven, he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. I'm not sure how a lamb can do that, but he does. Can you feel the drama of what's happening here? This is like that moment when all the Avengers go to lift Thor's hammer to see who is the one who is worthy, and none of them can lift it. Many others have been counted as unworthy until Jesus, the lion and the lamb, steps forward. You can almost sense the entire universe inhaling at this moment. But he reaches out and he takes the scroll. Only he can. It's coronation moment. It is Jesus exhibiting publicly that he is king. Verse 8 And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. The elders are holding bowls filled with the prayers of God's people, and these are producing a sweet smell before the throne of God. And what are these prayers? Well, we sing a song here, and we are again soon, that talks about incense arising uh, day and night before God's throne. That incense is not just worship for God, but these are the prayers of longing from God's people. This is every time you've asked God to make the world right again. Every time you've cried out and asked for something that is wrong to be fixed. It goes in one of these bowls. Every time you've cried out for justice. Every time you've asked for, uh, for God to come and fix what's happened as a result of the curse. This is where it goes. It is right there in God's presence, and it is especially present in this moment because these prayers can now be fully and finally answered. It's every time you've said, how long, oh God? How long will you allow this suffering and injustice to continue in our world? And it's all there to be answered in this moment. So the elders who have bowed down, It's an awesome scene. We're not going to read all of it. But they start to worship. And they're joined by millions and millions of angels. Then the created universe, which has been inhaling, exhales and erupts in endless and uncontrollable, uncontainable praise. Verse 12. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. What a moment, what a moment. We all long for a day when the wrongs will be made right, when peace reigns and love is our native tongue. The only way this happens is through Jesus. One way we can anticipate that is by coming to him and worshiping him. God in his grace allows us to know him and love him. And one day, I will be there amongst those people in my prayer is that you will be there too as we gather around the throne and declare, he alone is worthy of all blessing, honor, and glory. These two things are vital to understanding what revelation is all about. When Jesus is revealed, we will see him in glory, and we will see his worthiness because of his sacrifice. But it also speaks to our lives now Because we can see that if Jesus is this, and he's our Lord and our Savior, that whatever happens in our life, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. The world is not out of control. I know it looks like that sometimes. I know it looks in this COVID uh, world where all of a sudden we get hit by something or hit by something else, where there's sickness, where there's pain, where there's suffering. Looks like it's out of control, but it's not. That is what we firmly hold to as Christians. If there are beastly figures, or antichrists, or plagues, or persecution, we know we will be all right. If situations threaten us, we don't need to worry. All we need to do is trust in the one who is in command of history. We know the one who sacrificed has given him the power to be in control of history. He is God revealed, and this is how the story ends. The same figure we meet in Revelation 1 is there in Revelation 21. And he sits on a throne and he renews everything. Jesus is the king of the earth. He is the king of all of time and space. And when did he become king? It's not then. It's not once he opens the scrolls. He became king The moment his dead heart beat again, that was when Jesus became king. All we're seeing him do in these passages is take that role that he's already won. The fact that he is the slaughtered lamb still standing means that he is the king here. He is the king now. The king of our world is Jesus. It's nobody else. And so today, whatever we're going through, we know that we can trust him. So what's going on in your life right now? This message is for you tonight. You need to know that your life is not controlled by circumstances or by others' choices, but that Jesus Christ, who is revealed as king and as a servant, is in charge of your life. You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your heart. He will tap you on the shoulder and he will lift you up. Jesus is king right now. So we're not scared by what might happen. It's not the end of the world. We're confident, and we know the one who will put his right hand on us and lift us up. Tonight, what we're gonna do is we're gonna worship. And as we do, we can come to him and say, you are worthy of it all, and I give myself to you. Can you bring to him your pain tonight? Bring to him your questions? Bring to him your doubt and frustrations? Bring to him your longing to see everything made right again. Then bring to him your trust and join in the eternal song and sing, you are worthy of it all. Can I have the band up? Can you guys stand with me tonight? It's quite a picture. Imagine we were in the throne room of heaven. Imagine that we're right there. And in this moment, we are coming into that place where we glorify him, where we give it all to him, where we give him our trust. Can we pray? And tonight, as we do, maybe you still have a few how-longs. Maybe you are still very keenly aware of struggles in your life, whether it be from the outside or from the inside, things that you're working through. Tonight, bring them before God. He wants them. He's given everything that you might be free from them. Father God, tonight, we love you. We're in awe of you. You are awesome, God. You are mighty and wonderful. And it is our privilege to be called your children. We thank you, God, that you are revealed in power. And one day, every eye will see your face. And every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And God, we don't want to wait for that moment. But we want to declare it here and now. We want to join with all the saints and angels, with every creature, as we declare your worthiness. Come and meet us tonight. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.